Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell. Okay, so Jason has an interest in Mount Everest uh, in some way, <laughs> shape, or form, so she thought we uh, should have a podcast on Everest economics of, of some sort. So I'm going to throw it back to Jason, and she's going to kind of lead our way through this talk on Mount Everest. Uh, there. There is some interesting stuff that goes on on how that uh, rolls out. Jason? Uh, yeah, so it, I, my interest in it kind of started when I read the book Into Thin Air, which was published in like 1997. But then I thought I'd look more into what's going on on Mount Everest now. And it's, it's pretty crazy that um, how much popularity and how commercialized Mount Everest is now. Back when people first started attempting to climb, it was pretty much just like elite climbers. Right. And now thanks to things like supplemental oxygen, a lot of inexperienced climbers have even <laughs> attempted and summited Mount Everest. And so that kind of led the way for people to start a business taking people to summit Mount Everest, mm -hmm. um, but it's grown so much. And uh, so, is the oxygen like in a like some sort of vest or something that I, I'm just trying to envision? Because you don't want a lot of weight, or do you just hire the Sherpa to bring up your oxygen for you in one of those big tanks that you see in a hospital? Uh, yeah. So they basically the Sherpas do carry the canisters <laughs> up the mountain. There, there's even been examples of guide companies who will have them like hide it on the mountain, so oh. that way when they're coming back down, they have oxygen that they didn't have to carry. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, but it's made it a lot easier for inexperienced people to do it, and the Nepal government doesn't have a restriction on how many people can be on these expeditions or how many expeditions there are. So now it's so popular that there is like an amusement park line to get to the summit of Mount Everest because there's only what 10 days a year that it's even the weather's good enough for them to oh, attempt is that, it. I didn't realize it was 10 days. Is that it? Just yeah. 10 days? Wow. Yeah, it's less than two weeks. And a lot of people will spend time. Uh, I had a neighbor that went and did base camp only, or she did mm -hmm. a, I think she did a jump. She was a and it jumps out of airplanes and stuff. Uh, one of my first MBA students. So, yeah. So That's I wild. think she did the, the one of the base camps, but not all the way. So this is to get to the summit. And now you've got a little maybe tragedy of the commons thing coming up here, maybe. Yeah. And they say that the summit of Everest is the size of like two ping pong tables. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Mm hmm so limited supply and yeah. uh, increase in demand. Well, that's, well and yeah, that's oh, what I was trying to think of. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, and if you look at what the <laughs> Nepal government has done with the pricing, it started out like a couple thousand dollars for people to climb in the early 90s. And then like 19, like 93, they raised it to 10,000. And now it's like $75,000 to have an oh, exhibition. And after like a certain number of climbers, it's an additional $10,000 per climber. Wow. And it has done nothing to reduce the demand. Wow. 
so the the government is collecting that kind of money mm-hmm. and then blowing it on something <laughs> non-related to uh sustaining the the place or are they actually doing improvements to the to basically the let's call it the park system well with those funds so as far as i know they're not doing anything with those funds that's and- what i figured um, on Everest, the oh, they're doing some things, but it, yeah. a nice uh, yeah. car that the minister yeah. of uh, public relations has for the Nepal government. And... Yeah, and the amount of debris that's on the mountain is amazing. They're saying oh, it's yeah. like the world's highest landfill. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, I would imagine so... with that many people going up there and leaving big stuff like oxygen tanks or what. I mean, that's mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. So now instead of like putting up some of their own money they give them like a 4,000 deposit and then the government will give it you back if you bring down like what is it 17 pounds of debris oh really yeah so now they just charge you more but they'll give it back if you bring down the debris but they don't there hasn't been a lot that the government specifically has done to bring down the debris yeah and obviously the technology is there probably be a many different ways especially when you got 85,000 a person to get that debris out of there you can helicopter up or drone yeah. uh, drones would probably be able to go and pick up debris on the sides or whatever yeah i would imagine that the helicopter like that's probably why it was so dangerous in the past partly why it was so dangerous is because like you get stuck i mean i would imagine flying a helicopter up that high would be pretty tough but oh. yeah i think it's only they can only fly up to base camp and even that's not Oh, the surface. So what what strikes me as interesting is that, you know, things that we normally associate with the government doing, just like, well, I guess the mechanism that they typically use is regulation, right? And so we we sort of charge them with taking care of, you know, things that, you know, in economic theory, private solutions can't help, right? Public goods or, or significant externalities or something like that. Right. Um, and so maybe there's an argument for, for that here in this case, right? Um, or at least that they've allowed it to be a public good right instead of actually just restricting but but so there's no regulation on you know what you can do or whatever but they just jack the price up instead yeah and and sort of hoping that that i guess is but i guess the, the issue is that i no, think they're just jacking up the price i mean jason i guess whatever you've read or researched but my guess is they're just jacking up the price to get tax revenue to cover other pitfalls yeah. in other areas but i guess i'm, I'm trying to that's like the cash cow like like venezuela sitting on oil Right. That's the natural resource they're sitting on, and they're like they're able to extract it from people who want to do the climb. So I'm I'm trying to think of it as like you know I think the the junk on the mountain kind of gives you at least some way to you know talk about some kind of a, a, a an economic bad associated with oh yeah climb right yeah. and so and a market solution I think you're right there is a market solution for sure but well I, so I mean just just to go through the theory so like the idea would be that if there's this externality to people climbing which is that, you know, they leave all this debris on the mountain. Okay, sure. So then what you would want to do is you would want to figure out how to, you know, shift the demand curve to the left, right? Because there's some kind of a social bad there that's being produced as an externality, right? Yeah. And so what you do is you, um, you know, I guess in this case, what they're doing actually is they're just raising the price, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's not really, you know, I guess that's like, I, I guess... What's, what's interesting is they have no way of knowing what the equilibrium price of a, you know, a climb on Mount Everest is. And so they have no idea if, you know, raising that price is going to, you know, effectively right. deal with that problem or not. 
Well, and you'd always raise it. I mean, the Pigouvian tax would be to raise it sufficiently to cover the externality, but then you actually have to go out and pick up the garbage. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you have to actually right. use the money and allocate. And, yeah. and so, an right. easy way they apparently, if the if they've raised it up that high and there's still a long line, there would be an argument to even better the status quo by, okay, uh, we we want a private company to come and clean up the garbage and. Right you're going to get 10,000 more off of each climber and that's going to be your money and then go out for bids of who wants to do it for that amount. And if nobody, you know, some sort of auction process or something like that yeah. to win the bid, they'd have to estimate what, uh, at least roughly what that would cost to get There it. have been a couple of expeditions that have brought down quite a bit of debris. I, I think they just like raised money to go and do it. Oh, okay. um, so that, that has happened on occasion. <laughs> Now, at the same time, I feel like if the tree falls in the forest but nobody's there, did it really make a sound? And my right. point is, the externality, if there's debris up there, yeah. uh, and it's so far away, nobody can, nobody's impacted by it, actually. Assuming that it's not, that it's literally just laying there, not leaking into the soil or causing birds to die or yeah. something, but they're so high in elevation that probably not much lives up there, I would guess. Yeah, you kind of have a coast thing of, like, you have to figure out, like, what not only who's harming whom, but is someone even harmed in the right. first place? Yeah, because yeah. an externality does, there needs to be some, yeah. there has to be assuming some we don't make Mother Earth a person or right. whatever, exactly. that, that, that yeah. there is something, because then it's just the climbers who are going up that are seeing the debris, but they're internal. They're also, they're they're, also leaving their own There's debris. no externality because they're internalized. Yeah, right, so. exactly. That's true. Yeah, yeah Jason? So... But if, if you're considering Mother Earth a person, which a lot of the Sherpa community does think sure. that the mountain is like some sort of being. Yeah. And yeah. so at least for the culture there, that, that is. Yeah. No, I, 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 mean, I think there's, yeah, there'd be an argument to be made. The solution's the same. If we give a property right to Mother Earth and the government acting as a, a benevolent agent of mother earth or whatever yeah. there, there is a market solution there to be had but that might cause problems for the government who's collecting a nice check that they use in other areas i mean to me the solution would be the sherpas right they they already climb up and bring all the stuff another few trips they probably wouldn't mind and uh, that you were going to get into that later maybe right uh with, mm -hmm. the, with the sherpa stuff so yes well, well i guess just to maybe we can do that after the break yeah. or something, but yeah. uh, one, one quick thing I wanted to point out. And so I, I want to, I want to link to our show with that. We, we've had some discussions on this environmental stuff and had some guests. So I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to link to some other shows that, you know, kind of related material, but you know, I was just kind of thinking that, you know, we have this, there's this, in the case of this Everest thing, it's like here, the good you want is you want to be able to climb Everest, right? You want access. And the way the Nepalese government is handling this, that they're just saying, just pay money. Right. But, but I think what's interesting about that is it's so different from a lot of the ways that here in the U.S. that we handle these sort of environmental public goods, like, uh, like deer hunting, right? So, you know, it's deer season's coming yep. up or whatever. Right. We're in it right now. Yeah, there Kansas, you go. Uh, just opened up last week. It's and only a 12-day season, too, the rifle season. Right. And so it's, it's such a different thing. So, like, you know, you were saying, Jason, that Everest kind of has this natural season to it where there's only a 10-day window. Yeah similar to rifle season, mm -hmm. right? But, but the, but the thing about that is, it's like for us, you know, you go buy a deer tag, right? So you, you, have a, there's also a quantity limitation. Like 
you know, you, there's a price, the pricing is, you know, how many times or, you know, how many bucks can I get? How many does, whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, so we, we have this season that we regulate and then we enforce it, right? We have all these game wardens and stuff. And it's, so it's, it's just a little different, I think, because, you know, if we were to just say open season, right? I mean, the seasons are, you know, the season doesn't exist and we just price it. How much would a deer tag cost? And I mean, there's other examples like in Texas, you know, the thing I found out there is there's not really any public land hardly. And so everybody who likes to hunt just has to like go come together with two or three other families and buy a hunting lease on someone's property yeah. somewhere. And so it's, it's yeah, just interesting object, to see well, different I, I pricing. I'm hearing you say, I mean, the objective, the objective function is a little different. If you're, you're, you're kind of taking a cost approach since there's no profit involved, like mm-hmm. how much do we have to collect to, sustain the policing system through the wardens and and uh you know maybe some cameras and stuff on different places or whatever uh how much money do we need to collect to sustain this public good that we want other people to share in that doesn't seem to be necessarily what's going on in nepal where you've got an eighty-five thousand dollar deer tag (laughs) yeah well (laughs) yeah the prices are certainly completely different yeah i I don't think the public good nature uh is is there that we're trying to keep prices low and then of course they're not even doing anything with it so well that that looks a good spot i think we'll uh we'll tease out a few more issues here after the break and uh, talk a little bit more about this uh, sherpa business i'll see you in a bit The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysex or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org. So welcome back. We're discussing Mount Everest today, and uh, Jason's going to launch us into the second half here, talking about the Sherpa industry, I guess you would call it, or the, the Sherpas uh, that, that help people get up to uh, the top of Everest. Yeah, so Sherpas are a, it's very common for expeditions to hire Sherpas to uh, help with the expedition. 
because first off, they're used to high altitude because they live at high altitude. Yeah, yeah definitely and, describe what a Sherpa is. Not everybody listening might not have that down exactly. We've probably said it too many times at this point without defining <laughs> what a Sherpa is. So Jason, tell us that. Yeah, of course. So there's actually two different forms of Sherpa. So Sherpa capitalized is the culture, the actual ethnic group that lives oh. um, in Nepal at high altitude. Uh, but then you have lowercase Sherpa, which is your guides, um, your expedition leaders who help with that. And so there's two different forms. So you can have a Sherpa. Sherpas are often used to help carry things like oxygen canisters to the top. They're also known to set routes, lines, ladders, all of that to get to the summit, right. uh, which which is one of the dangers of being a Sherpa because there are sections of Mount Everest that are pretty dangerous. Uh, one of the most famous is called Icefall. And Sherpas will climb this section 40 plus times in an expedition. Wow. To set lines. I wonder what their life insurance premiums like. <laughs> So the government (laughs) will actually give uh, Sherpa families, I think it's like $400 if they die on the mountain. Oh. Yeah. So $400 compensation. Wow. That's it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I can't imagine that's even in that country much to spit at. Yeah. I don't know anything about Nepal, but yeah, 400 bucks is ridiculous. Now, I'm also thinking these guys would probably be awesome marathoners. What do you know <laughs> about that? Like, with that high elevation, like, do, are we aware of uh, these guys being dominating the marathon scene? Or They, they mostly stay local. They don't leave the, the land too much, I don't think, or I don't know. Uh, no, I think other than going to obviously other mountains in the Himalayas, uh-huh. um, but I don't. I don't think they really leave that region at all. Yeah. So, talking about the Sherpas, um, they do make a decent amount of money, considering the Nepal how how much people typically make in Nepal. Right. Let's see. I think it's about three thousand to five thousand dollars they make where the national average income is like $700. Okay. So this is like a really profitable job, but it's got more on the line. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the government assumes they self-insure to some extent, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Uh, But the thing is, uh, if you look at the, the death toll that has occurred on Mount Everest, the majority of the deaths on Everest are Sherpas. Are Sherpas. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is including, I think, the second deadliest day in 2014 was due to an avalanche, and it was uh, 16 people died, and they were all Sherpas. Wow. I wonder if that's... So what's the, yeah, what's the average death rate per year? Does it, did you have data like that? I don't that think... Was, 16 was a bad that. year, so it, but it's always somebody per year, almost for sure, or not sure? Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's... I, I want to say it's like three to four percent, but I, I could be wrong about that. Right. So I guess to to bring in a little bit of faith, I guess we have an opportunity to kind of talk about something uh, sort of an Eastern faith. I'm sure. So you said these Sherpas, you know, they they think of this the mountain as some kind of uh, you know spiritual being or something like that. What what are the, do you know much about the Sherpas in terms of their their religious practice or whatever? I I know a little bit about it. I know that. 
the Sherpas don't believe that the death can move on unless they're buried okay. uh, by their families. And so that's that's been a lot of issues when, like... Uh-oh. And then I know that they're, they're against, like, some of the things that have occurred on mountains with Western culture. Um, like, if, if we do something, they're like, oh, that's, that's against the mountain, and that's not always respected. Hey, Jason, can you, can you repeat what you said after you said that they need to be buried by their families? Because your internet, like, Your audio cut. cut. Oh. So yeah. you might have to edit this out, or if it's yeah. not too bad, just leave it. But It'll be yeah, easy go for it. it just repeat yourself there. Right. Uh, yeah, so what I was saying was the, the Sherpas, their families bury the dead, or, or they can't move on. And so when an avalanche occurs or something like that, where it's hard to find the body that, that leaves their family, not only in like financial turmoil because they lost somebody who brings in the income, but they also are, have that religious turmoil where they're unable to bury their dead. Right. Huh. So that's kind of a mystic type religion. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably yeah. Some thing. yeah. Interesting. Well, so if, as far as like their motivation, so, you know, talking economics and I guess bringing in maybe if there is some kind of faith and economics overlap with the Sherpas themselves, like, so do they, is there, is it just the significant financial compensation that, that draws them to the mountain or is there some kind of mystical thing as well where like, you know, you, you want to be a Sherpa because of this, because of uh, other aspects of their faith or something like that. Do you know something about that or? Uh, I don't know if there's any, like, religious pull to working on the mountain other than, like, uh, kind of requesting respect from Westerners who come and climb the mountain. So I think it's into thin air. They talk about they have to be blessed by the priest, or I'm not sure what the, the term is, but they have to be blessed before they get past a certain point and things like that. Or if they say something or do something on the mountain, then the shippers are like, oh, bad things are going to happen because... You, you did this on the mountain. Right. Okay. I see. Huh. So it sounds purely uh, capitalistic then. It's just yeah. High, high wage induces you to take on the danger. Right. Right. Just to take, yeah. Right. High enough wage from mostly rich first world people coming over paying the 85, 75, 80 grand to <laughs> do it. Real. And then they're, are they, that includes the Sherpa, the 75, 80 grand, or is that on top? That's like for the permit, and then they pay the Sherpa on top of that. Yeah, so that, that's just the permit, and then that's included in what they charge clients to yeah. join an expedition. Yeah. That'd be kind of funny, you know, you go to the state park, and you go up to the little window, and they're like, okay, your entrance fee bit $3, and, you know, yeah. oh, $10 today, and. Oh, 75,000. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, wait a second. Tomorrow. I did I should have researched this a little better. I didn't realize. <laughs> no, people do a lot of planning for for that. How long of a training period do you think uh people do if they're, you know, not Everest worthy short of these uh, innovations that we have, I guess, but uh do people train for like a year or something or more to climb Everest? Uh- so there, there's a lot of debate over the, the training for it because there are a lot of inexperienced climbers attempting to do Everest yeah. because it's commercialized. But even in expedition, you'll be on the mountain a couple months to get um, acclimatized to the altitude up there. 
Oh, wow. That's right. That's, yeah, that's so the part it's I a two about. to three month expedition. Yeah, you yeah. have to pay to. Yeah. So you got to be up there for a while just to. So you're away from work and family or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a, right. that's a big thing to get that. Well, it, it's a, it's apparently okay because they'll have a Sherpa carry a computer to base camp for you. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so was the was the book mostly just going over some of the stuff, or were there other elements to the story that your book had? Uh, so the book was um, the first official deadliest day of Everest in 1995. Oh, a couple of expeditions, but I think that writer. He does a fantastic job in the leading up to that day. So he covers meeting the Sherpas and the process of going through that and the different um, steps that they took to get used to the altitude and relationships between people. It's a, it's a really, really good book. Boring. Uh, <laughs> no, I, it, I, I just end up not getting into that stuff that, that much. But uh, I, I, like the, I like watching that type of stuff on TV. My wife watches that type of, or uh, reads that type of material. But I'm doing Harry Potter, actually, is what I'm doing. Uh, Jason, I was meaning to tell you that, that yeah, I, uh, I did start the Harry Potter series. So. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I was trying to see here what Nepal is uh, economic freedom they're ranked 110 so they are in the third quartile of all the countries 110 out of 162 countries that have that we have data on which is right. pretty much the whole world right. and so they are in the third quartile which means they're not so yeah, not so free yeah. and uh Part of that looks like it's uh, due to their regulation and money. And sound money is bad, so they probably got some inflation issues. I'm guessing. Right. So, right. So, all right. Well, does that look like a, a good place to wrap? Or any yeah. last comments on Everest, Jason? Uh, no, I think that's good. All right. Well, on behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, we'd like to thank you all for listening. And uh, if you feel so inclined to just be, have us be a regular download, that helps us rise in the ranks uh, and get some more exposure and tell your friends about it. Uh, we'd sure appreciate it. We do have a Gortney Institute uh, gift page uh, if you make it to our website, gortneyinstitute.org. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.